All right, we are continuing in, as I said last time, our absolutely normal and totally regular Christmas series in Ecclesiastes. Uh, this morning we are looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you can pi- find that on page 704, 704. As you're turning there, just a, a quick reminder of where we've been so far. The author, most likely Solomon, Uh, is exploring the world as it is lived normally without reference to God, as if God didn't exist. That is the, excuse me, the world under the sun, he calls it. And he looks at several of the ways that we try to create meaning, to infuse meaning into our lives, and ultimately he evaluates each one of those things as vanity. And that word is difficult to translate. You remember we've said it's ephemeral or passing, almost like a breath of mist on a cold morning, how you can see it for just a second and then it's gone. Each of these attempts that we make to infuse meaning in our lives is that passing, that ephemeral, briefly visible and then gone with little if any record. Now this morning, Solomon begins to draw some conclusions from that investigation that he's been pursuing, from his examination of those different tactics. As always, when we open God's Word, we need His Spirit to speak to us. So if you're able, please stand with me while I pray and remain standing as I read from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Word. We need your truth. We need your grace. We need you to speak into our lives, to break into our under-the-sun thinking. And yet, Lord, our sin is such that if you just give us the bare truth, we will twist it to mean what we want it to mean. And so we need your Spirit to superintend it, to care for it, and make sure that it applies, is believed, and, and is lived out in our lives as you intend for it to be. We beg you, Lord Jesus, give us your spirit this morning. Speak to us your truth through this, your word, as you restrain our sin. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. This is God's word. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after me, after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity or passing and hurting the wind. And I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill 
must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great wickedness. Great evil, I should say. What has, been, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. And even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is passing and a herding of the wind. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a waking, walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. In case you don't recognize that, that is Macbeth, Act 5, Scene 5, almost the very end. Uh, as the title character there receives news of the death of Lady Macbeth, his wife. Uh, if you're not familiar with the play, as in all of Shakespeare's tragedies in Macbeth, everybody dies in the end, or almost everybody. Uh, this is different from his comedies, because in the comedies, everybody gets married in the end. Just basically the same thing. Uh, in this quote, Macbeth is feeling everything spiral out of wholly out of his control he's feeling the world of the play descend into chaos and destruction but it's interesting that the cry of his heart isn't directly related necessarily to the events that prompted the grief the chaos are there to be sure but his cry is about the futility of a life that ends in death the implied question in Macbeth's speech is simply this. If there really is nothing more than this and everything about life is wiped away at death and whatever is left will be passed on to another, if all of that is true, what's the point of doing anything? This is much the same question that Solomon is wrestling with in our passage this morning. If it's true that you can't take it with you when you go, and it is, why bother? Why bother fighting to achieve and to earn and to do anything? To win renown? Why bother? Now Solomon's already been kind of in that place for a little while, and he, he tried the most obvious way out. Remember, he tried to, uh, to do achievements and work. He tried worldly wisdom. Uh, he tried uh, you know all of the things that he could, and it seemed to come to nothing and be vain and passing away. And so he said, fine, I give up. I'm just going to go have fun with my life and do you know nothing important and uh, eat, drink, and be merry. And that didn't work either. And now he's come to the conclusion that even that, 
the most obvious way out doesn't work either. If there's no point to hard work and it's all going to be passed on to someone else anyway, why not give myself to disillusion, to a life of hedonism? Might as well enjoy life to the fullest now since I can't take it with me when I go. But the reality of death as the great equalizer, that death comes for all alike, great and small, man and woman, slave and free, Democrat and Republican, independent and disgusted, wise and foolish, it doesn't matter. Death waits for all of us. Without exception, death waits for all of us in the ordinary course of events. And that idea drives Solomon to despair. And let's be honest, the more we dwell on that reality, the more likely we are to be driven to despair as well. We feel that we were meant for something more than this passing nothingness. For something great and glorious and enduring. The greatest human victories ultimately fall to dust. Destroyed by the ravages of time. Forgotten as thoroughly as that Ozymandias poem that I read a couple of weeks ago. Nothing under the sun can relieve this tension. We long for endurance and greatness. And everything we see in our life falls to dust. And is forgotten. And when, like Solomon, we are thinking deeply about this reality, it crushes us. What are we to do in light of the reality of death? Well, Solomon's thought here follows a progression that can help us, help make some sense out of this for us as, as he walks through this. The, the great preacher, as he's addressed in this book, is almost brutally honest with his own wrestling with this problem. This reality, the universality of death. And his candor gives us a framework that we can follow as we think through this hard truth so that we come out the other side instead of just getting stuck in the despair and the misery of it. Solomon's been investigating all the different ways people try to infuse meaning into their lives, uh, the different ways that we order our energies towards tasks so that we can find good somewhere, the things that we find to be pleasing to us. The reality is that people are made, humans are made to serve something greater than ourselves. We long to give ourselves to a great cause, to make a mark on the world and be remembered. We kick against the goads because the knowledge of impending death infuses almost everything we do and say and think and touch. It is the great reality from which there is no escape. For most of us, most of the time, we want to avoid thinking about it. We want not to be reminded of the grim reality. A few years ago, I heard someone, I can't remember who now, I apologize. Someone was talking about the, a great shift in modern culture. Uh, to this person, the biggest difference about modern culture versus pre-modern was our approach to death. Until the mid-1800s, maybe even the late-1800s, many places even until the mid-1900s, death happened at home. And so it was a part of our experience. We saw death. It was unavoidable. We were forced to reckon with the reality of it because we saw it. But as modernity took over and death was moved out of the home and into hospitals and nursing homes and hospice houses and on and on and on. Look, don't hear what I'm not saying. Modern medicine is a good thing. You shouldn't detest it. Uh, but at its heart, medicine is fighting a losing battle against the curse of sin. 
the most modern medicine or any medicine can do is push back the curse a little while. It can't eradicate death. We feel the weight of the curse. We kick against it. We push back as much as possible, pushing it as far away from us as, possibly, as we possibly can. But the further it gets from us, the more unfamiliar it is, the more terrible it is. And the more terrible it is, the more this reflection that death waits for all of us preys on our minds. And most of us simply close our eyes to it, right? We ignore it. Go about our our days not thinking about it, just doing the things that are immediately in front of us. Maybe thinking that because we can't change it, there's no point in thinking about it, and so let's, you know, do something else instead. Maybe some other reason, I don't know. But let's, this morning, look with clear eyes at the reality that faces us and follow Solomon's reflections as he goes through this grim reality that we all face. As Solomon has been thinking about these tactics under the sun that we've talked about over the last several weeks, workaholism, worldly wisdom, hedonism, how each is vanity or vapor passing, that it has no substance, no weight to endure, he finally winds down in verse 11 of chapter 2 to say that it's all passing or vaporous, that there is nothing to be gained under the sun. But this requires some more thought, some more explanation, because the alternative To give in to death, to hasten death, doesn't bear thinking on, as many of the secular philosophers of the 19th and 20th centuries discovered. The reality of most human philosophy is that the only conclusion is, therefore, kill yourself, because there's no hope and nothing good can happen. But most of those philosophers refused that in in their wisdom as as it happens. Where does Solomon go with this? How does he understand this? He's already concluded that work and wisdom and pleasure are passing, vaporous, therefore probably pointless. But there's a fly in the ointment. Because at the end of the day, it is better to be wise than foolish. And Solomon should know as he's examined both from the inside. Verse 13, he says, There is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And so we've got these contradicting conclusions that wisdom cannot lead to endurance, that it is vanity and passing, and yet there is more gain in wisdom than in fooly. So which is it? The reality, of course, is that there's no eternal gain to being the wisest man alive. It doesn't eliminate the curse. Nevertheless, there is gain in this life. There is earthly gain. It is better to walk through a dark room with a candle than without one. Even if the candle can't illuminate much beyond your own feet, even if as soon as you leave the room, the wind's going to blow it out and nobody will remember it. Wisdom has value in ordering in this life, even if it cannot save you. The specter of death raises its head again in verse 14 and 15. Look at that with me. The same event, death, the same event happens to all, the wise and the foolish alike. Now, As an aside, this is one of the, the hardest things about this book because it's not a settled time of teaching where everything is neatly ordered in bullet points and boxes and categories. And it, here's the answer, X, Y, Z, here you go, just learn it and accept it, and there you go, you've got it. 
This isn't that. This is the record of Solomon wrestling with a hard thing. And so he seems to kind of go back and forth and, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that and I don't understand. Trying to discover truth. The thought seems to be that we as readers, as those who study this book and God's wisdom, we gain wisdom as we see Solomon's wrestling through this issue. As he with clear eyes looks at the hard parts and works through them. To use an analogy from mathematics, Solomon is showing his work, as it were. And we learn as much, if not more, about true wisdom from seeing that wrestling. Because as much as we'd like for it to be, life is not neat and tidy and organized under bullet points and so everything is nice and clear and easy. It just isn't. It's a mess. So, it is, verse 13, better to be wise than to be a fool. But, look at verse 16. Of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Both die and are forgotten. There is no enduring remembrance. Now, as Christians, our temptation here is to jump to the end of the book, right? to go immediately to Christ and our hope of resurrection. And that hope is real and we will get there. But we have to feel the full weight of Solomon's struggle before we get there. If you haven't yet, if it hasn't come up in your life yet, you will face some event or set of events in your life that will overwhelm you that will be more than you can handle, that will feel utterly crushing. And when, you, when it does, you will be tempted to cry and maybe even will cry with Solomon in verse 17, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun is grievous to me, for it is all vanity or passing and hurting the wind. That is a no- part of life in this world under the curse to feel the weight of that. Solomon goes on to explain more fully why he hates life and not only the fact of death, but the results after death. Everything he strove to achieve and earn and win over the course of decades will be passed on to another. He will no longer have control of it. He will have no voice in the ordering of it. He will not be his anymore. And what's the point? It may be used wisely and well, or it may be frittered away foolishly over decades, or it may be burned in a momentary pyre and be gone instantly. And there's almost some foreshadowing here if you're familiar with the story of Israel, right? The history of God's people. After Solomon's death, his son Rehoboam becomes king. Rehoboam was most decidedly not wise. And not only was he not wise, he refused to listen to the counsel of those who were wise, preferring flatterers and sycophants. And within a very short time, the massive wealthy kingdom that David and Solomon had tended and grown and shepherded and turned into one of the wonders of the world... In a very short time, that kingdom was broken and a greater portion, the greater portion of it was divided off, never to be reunited. 
What Solomon built from a human perspective was broken within 10 years of his death. Unless we think that this is an unusual occurrence, I read a statistic this week uh, that I thought was interesting at least. Of, of those in the last couple centuries or so, uh, our day and age, who have amassed great fortunes, um, who devoted their lives to growing a business, making it successful, and, and controlling large portions of the market, whatever, you know, you know what that looks like. Of those who have done that, the vast majority of the cases, almost without exception, that fortune is completely gone within one generation. Completely gone in one generation. And even in the times that it's not quite all the way gone, usually what you see, the best case scenario is one generation acquires it, the second generation kind of maintains it somewhat, keeps it on level, the third generation it's gone. Given that reality, we can sympathize with Solomon's response in verse 20. I gave up my heart to despair. He gave himself over to toil and sorrow and vexation and lost sleep, verse 23, and nothing comes of it. It doesn't even last several generations. It is gone almost as soon as the one who earned it is gone. And here's the point. In the solutions that we pose to the weight and the futility of the, the misery of sin and the curse, if we are calculating purely in this life, we're going to come to the same conclusion. There is no point, and we should just give ourselves over to despair. There's no hope. Give up. Nothing matters. Nothing will change. Even the good that we do will be forgotten in a few short years. Our lives will have been, as it were, kicking a sack of feathers. Whatever impression we make will be gone the instant our foot is. If our solutions under the sun are all the hope that we have, then we have no hope. And we need to feel the full weight of that because it is inescapable. But then we get to verse 24, which seems to make no sense at all on the surface of it, right? Solomon has just finished examining at exhaustive length toil or work and physical pleasure and concluded quite painfully that there was no point to them at all. There was no hope and it's all just passing vapor. So what in the world is different here in verse 24 where he says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. You just said those didn't work, Solomon. What is going on? He goes from it's all awful and nothing matters and despair and woe and awfulness to there's nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment. The key is in this next statement. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? This is the key to the whole thing. The problem is not the activities. The problem is the context, the framework, the stance of mind and heart that approaches and undergirds these activities. If we locate ourselves purely under the sun, then there's no hope. With no thought of, the, or, ref, thought of or reference to God, then we will certainly end in despair because there is no hope at all in those things. They have no endurance. They have no permanence. They cannot satisfy in any ultimate sense. They may make you feel good for five minutes. But that's it. 
They will fall to dust and ashes when you die if they don't do so before then. But if we reorient our lives toward Christ's upside-down kingdom, if we see all of life in light of his work in and through us, and then those activities, eating and drinking and working and toiling and all of those things, those activities can gain proper significance and true value. Not eternal significance, not salvific value. They cannot support that weight. You cannot save yourself by your actions, no matter how wise or successful you are. But when ordered rightly before the face of Christ, when he is the first and ultimate good in your life, and everything else is ordered in light of that first and ultimate truth, then those other things, those activities that we fill our time with, gain some value from him. For he gives us good things. He gives us the enjoyment of those good things things they cannot save and if we try to imbue work or smarts or pleasure with eternal weight or value they will be crushed and we will be crushed along with them they can do nothing other than disappoint us up utterly but when Christ with Christ recognized and worshiped as king over all and all things received from his hand whether wisdom or wealth or disaster then all things are made valuable by him, for they are his means to bring us to a closer understanding and worship of him. They have no value in themselves and can only destroy us. But when ordered rightly in the light and received from his hand, then they are his grace drawing us to him and teaching us who he is and who we are in his, in, in front, in, before him giving us a right perspective on this life and of the world to come. But there is one other thing that we need to talk about because verse 26 can seem to point in an unhelpful direction if we read it just kind of on the surface. It seems to be saying, if you just read the surface level, it seems to be saying that Christ rewards those who are faithful with wisdom and knowledge and joy and that he curses those who are not faithful with the unhappy business, to quote 113, the unhappy business of gathering and collecting only to have what is gathered and collected given to those who are faithful, to be stripped away and given to the holy ones, the righteous. The problem with this, of course, is that it simply just doesn't line up with our experience of the world at all. As Psalm 73 shows, when we look around at our lives, often what we see is that the wicked receive ease and comfort and good stuff and lots of money and health and wealth and everything seems to be going their way, Lord, and it's not going my way for me. And what's going on? The righteous struggle and make, to struggle to make ends meet and wrestle with hardship and poor health and crappy conditions. And how does that make any sense, Lord? We look to God and ask in a very similar vein that what Solomon does here, where is the justice? Is this really how you've put the world together that those who are wicked get it easy and those who are pursuing righteousness struggle? Why is wickedness seem to be report, re, uh, rewarded? If there's one thing that Solomon is aiming at in this book, maybe more than anything else, it is a clear-eyed 
look at the reality of the world around us. He is not, and as indeed none of the Bible is, he is not asking us to close our eyes to the truth, to pretend that something is true when it isn't true. In fact, it seems that he's aiming at precisely the opposite, to awaken us from our slumber so that we do see the truth. He, as one commentator put it, he disillusions us into reality. What is this about then? What is this verse talking about? The vital contrast in this verse is between the satisfying spiritual gifts of God, wisdom, knowledge, joy, which only those who please him can desire or receive, versus the frustrating business of amassing what cannot be kept, a business which is the chosen lot of those who reject the Lord. It is not that God rewards holiness and punishes wickedness. It is that holiness is its own reward, and wickedness comes with its own curse. If you pursue the things of this world under the sun as the whole of your goal and purpose and identity in this life, you will be doomed to crushing despair and emptiness. Because that's the only thing that can result in, even if you succeed in this life. Even if you have all the money in the world, you will have nothing but emptiness to go with it. You will be doomed to the crushing despair that Solomon describes in our passage. But if you rightly order your life, if your treasure is not of this world, but of an entirely different kind, stored where moth and rust and thieves do not break in and destroy and steal, where time does not ravage, if your treasure is stored with Christ, if indeed your treasure is Christ and your union with him, then all these ordinary things of this life, you will be enabled to find ordinary joy and wisdom and knowledge. These things will be a blessing to you even in the midst of hardship because you know your faithful Savior. Your heart is oriented rightly. And yet, there will be a day when this reality, the brokenness and bifurcation between the holy and the wicked, there will be a day when that will end. Solomon says at the very end, this also is vanity or passing, striving after the wind, because there will come a day when this ends, when God will bless directly and reward directly those who follow him immediately and visibly without any further risk of the futility of death because death will have died. In that day, we will stand in his presence and we will worship him in spirit and in truth and in body. And all the pangs and the miseries of this life under the sun will be no more. He will be our light and our sun. And he will be with us and will be our God and we will be his people. For the Christian, death shall die and death itself will leave nothing behind. But God's people living in light of the upside down kingdom will continue in perfection with joy in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in the midst of 
struggles and confusions and hardships that you give us light. We still face death. We still struggle. Sometimes we don't understand how things fit together or why you allow things. But we trust you. Give us grace to order our hearts rightly in light of your truth. Grace to trust you more. Grace to live our entire lives valuing you above all. Make us make you our treasure. And then bless us with your presence, with your holiness, that we might be pleasing servants of yours. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.